Well, I know that everybody in this room has experienced thirst at some point. I wonder, though, how many of you have experienced thirst while actually not being confident that you would get a drink. Thirst that you're not sure you could quench. You're not sure when or where you would get access to that water that you're desperately needing. Back in the summer of 2006, right after my freshman year of college, I went on a missions trip to Senegal in West Africa. And one day we drove out to a remote village that had been invited to uh, watch the Jesus film. So maybe you're familiar with the Jesus film. It sort of just chronicles the life and the ministry of Christ. And it's been translated and dubbed over into hundreds of languages. And so this village had been invited to watch it. And they were going to watch it that evening. And uh, so we arrive in the morning and we, we greeted some of the elders of the village and we played with some of the children who were living there. But then eventually it was break time. It was lunchtime. And so, of course, we've been in the hot African sun all morning. So we're looking forward to a break and we're looking forward to some refreshment. And we were told that it would, be, it would be rude or dishonoring to eat and drink in front of the villagers without offering them something, right? It makes sense. But frankly, we didn't have enough to share with them. And so what we did is we just piled back in the van and we drove off a half mile or so down the road and we parked under a nice shade tree. Then we began to get our food out. And so we are thirsty and hungry and tired. We're in conditions that we're not used to. And so I remember at one point opening the trunk of the van and seeing our water supply for the whole rest of the day. And so there, there we are, about 10 of us that have piled into this van, many of us college students. We open up the van, and there's about four bottles of water for all 10 of us for the whole rest of the day. And I'm thinking, at this rate, we're going to go through all this in about five minutes here, right? We're, we're just desperately parched. This is not going to carry us. If you've traveled in the developing world, you know that you've got to drink the bottled water. And so we can't ask the villagers for water. If you drink of their water, you're going to be in a bad way for the rest of the trip. Some of you have been through that. The nearest store to go get more water is like an hour drive. And so, in a way that I had never experienced before in my life, you begin to get a little concerned, a little nervous. That, that scarcity mindset starts to set in. You're looking at the reality, and you're looking at who all needs to drink and get fed, and you begin to worry. Everybody is just kind of standing around wondering, okay, who's going to go first, right? Who's, who's going to break the ice and drink what little water we have? I hadn't really experienced that before that day, and I'm not sure I've ever experienced it since, but I will say to you that Jesus somehow multiplied the water because all of us got a drink and all of us were satisfied for the rest of the day. Well, in John 4 this morning, we have a, this truly fascinating encounter with Jesus and with a Samaritan woman who is thirsty. 
But we quickly discover that this woman is not just naturally thirsty. More importantly, she's spiritually thirsty. She's thirsty to be seen and known and loved. And we also learn details of her life. And based on those details that we learn, based on her past and her broken past and her present circumstances, she very well may be doubting that she would ever find her thirst satisfied. Well, we're all really thirsty, if we're honest, to be seen and known and loved too. Some of you here this morning are particularly thirsty for that in a real way, and that has led you to this place. Well, this morning I want to observe three, what I think are important features of this story. Three features of this transformational encounter between Jesus and this Samaritan woman, because I think these three things, and there's so much to this text, but these three things, I think, say something important to us about how God even encounters us in our lives, but also about how God's kingdom advances in this world through broken and ordinary people. And so as we turn to this text and all the richness that we'll see here, please first join me as we pray. And so, God, we thank you for your word again. And thank you for this amazing story, Lord. I pray you would open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit and open our hearts to whatever message that you have for us. So, Lord, work through me now as I preach and as we lean in to listen and respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing that I want to observe with you is that Jesus meets this Samaritan woman where she is at. So this whole notion of being met where we are at or meeting people where they are at, in some ways this is kind of a cliche phrase in churchy or Christian circles, but I think it's useful because it's important that God meets us where we are at. That's good news for us. So we know right from the jump in verse 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Not quite sure why. Maybe he was just compelled by the Spirit inside of him to do this. But really, most respectable Jews at this time would have actually preferred to avoid this whole region together. Just detour straight around Samaria on your way north. They would have preferred to travel through the foothills to the east right along the Jordan River. You see, it's because Jews at this time considered these Samaritans at best half-breeds. What happened was that after the Assyrian Empire had conquered this region, the northern kingdom of Israel, hundreds of years before, Assyria carted off several of the Jews, several of the inhabitants of the land into exile, and then repopulated the land with foreigners, with people that worshipped other gods, with people from other nations and tribes and kingdoms. And so these people eventually, of course, intermarry with the Jews who were left behind in that land, and so new gods are introduced, new religion is introduced, new ideas are introduced, and the purity of worship in this region gets watered down. And so by the time of Christ, 
This, these Samaritans who are living in this land, they had, uh, not, they're not only uh, you know, uh, carrying out a f- uh, sort of a false watered-down worship, they've also rejected almost all of the New Testament as we know it. With the exception of the first five books of our Old Testament, otherwise known as the Pentateuch, they had thrown out all the rest, throw out the prophets, throw out the poetical writings, throw out the historical writings. And not only that, they refuse to worship in Jerusalem, where God ordained that his temple be set up. And instead, they had their own temple, they had their own places of worship in that region, likely very close to where Jesus and this woman are talking. So there's some serious animosity here at this time between the Jews and the Samaritans. But now Jesus has made a choice, and he is now right in the heart of this place. And now it gets even more interesting. And so as we continue to read and to appreciate the the context for what's happening here, the religious context, the social context, there's even more layers of separation we discover for why Jesus should never have even been in this woman's presence, let alone talk to her. We know verse 9, so of course Jesus has come to this well, he sits down, he's thirsty, he asks for a drink, and the Samaritan woman responds, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? And then this parenthetical comment, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So it's, again, it's just Jesus we, we, we believe, according to the text, it's just Jesus, it's just this woman. And yet she, she is still just shocked that he would even engage her. But as we look at this text, we also see further clues about why Jesus shouldn't have necessarily gone there. Clues about this woman's sin and brokenness. And Jesus, as we see, he has some supernatural understanding of of her life, her brokenness, her pain, her history. And for all of those reasons, for all that baggage in her life, what we quickly see is that this woman is marginalized in her society. It's a strange thing for a woman like this to go draw water at noon. It's hot then. Typically, the woman would have gone to the well early in the morning or in the evening to avoid the heat of the day. But if you think about it, for someone who's marginalized and ostracized and judged and held in contempt, it makes perfect sense. You go when you're going to avoid everybody else. You go when you can avoid their remarks and their looks and their just contempt at who you are and the choices you've made. Sometimes we avoid people, too, in our lives. Sometimes we're just, frankly, kind of tapped out. Some of the introverts in the room will understand what I'm talking about. But, But other times, like this woman, maybe we do carry some shame or some guilt or we've messed up, we've embarrassed ourselves, we've disappointed someone, we've let somebody down, or something has happened to us that we carry shame about. And so for these reasons, there's times when we avoid and hope to not encounter people that would be aware of that. 
So the point is, friends, that Jesus is crossing all kinds of lies, lines. Jesus is an upstanding Jewish man who many are considering to be a rabbi, a teacher, a respectable man. And so such a man shouldn't associate with such a woman. This was very clear. And so he crosses lines, but not in a sinful way, in a missional way. And here we have a picture of the very heart of God. So on this micro scale, what Jesus does with this woman is what God has done with all humanity, with this broken world, is that God, even in his righteousness and holiness, has not kept this broken world at arm's distance and disassociated himself from it. Rather, at the heart of the Christian faith is a God who has entered right into the middle of it so that we can be healed and forgiven and saved and offered a better way. But even in your, your life, your individual life, God doesn't keep you at arm's distance in whatever mess or sin or whatever darkness you may be trapped in. Rather, God is close at hand to all of us as we reach out to him with faith and humility. Remember these words of the psalmist from Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Friends, God is near to you. Jesus, in his love and compassion, encounters this Samaritan woman right where she's at. He does the same for us. But not only that, friends, Jesus offers her something better. And that's the second feature that I want to focus on. So in verse 10, we see that Jesus begins to get this woman's interest. He begins to get her interested and intrigued and perhaps even confused, but nonetheless compelled by what he is trying to offer her. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So what's clear is that at first, this woman is only thinking in natural terms. She's, she's thinking, living water? What are you talking about? We, we've been living in this land for hundreds of years. We, we are not uh, familiar with any such living water source. Our answer is, so Jacob left us this well that he himself drank from, and so we come to this well, but we're not aware of any other living water source. But Jesus continues to build her expectations, perhaps her confusion. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So at this point, the woman is interested. Jesus has her hooked even if I'm not quite sure what he's saying, what he's offering. And then we have Jesus's supernatural insight into this woman's broken life. Jesus makes this offer, and then he says, 
Go bring your husband and I'll explain all this to you, both of you. Jesus knows, of course, that this is an area of pain. This is an area of brokenness. This is an area of sin for her. But he does this to get her attention so that he can get to her heart. Jesus unpacks her whole marital history, her five marriages. In the first century, certainly in the society, even in our society, this is an unusually high number of failed marriages. What's worse now is that she's living with a man who is not her husband, shacking up with him. So this is problematic. This is shameful. And her reputation follows her. You see, if her, if her parents or her immediate family are still around, they're certainly not going to take her in. She has brought all sorts of shame and dishonor on her family. Perhaps there was no children or sons produced by all these failed marriages, and so there's no son to care for her. At this time, women didn't just provide for themselves. And so she had to do what she had to do. And so this woman is seen by Jesus, known by Jesus, even in her brokenness. The question is now, will she be loved by Jesus? At this point, we enter into one of the most lengthy theological discussions that we have in all of the New Testament. And Jesus chooses to have it with this marginalized woman. This woman's baggage is exposed. She knows there's no more hiding. You know, she, she just tried to come to the well at her usual time to avoid everybody. And what does she run into? A prophet who knows everything about her. Names it all. So what does she do? This woman deflects. She deflects, she distracts, and then she launches into the heart of this very debate that separated her people from the people of Jesus. And she opens up this whole discussion in, in some attempt to kind of associate herself with this religious system that at best she's just on the margins of. This is human nature. We're good at deflecting, aren't we? When we feel exposed, when we feel vulnerable, when we feel found out, we get on our back heels and we react. In a marriage relationship or in a close relationship, if we, if we feel like our, 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 our motives are getting picked apart or the true intentions of our heart are getting picked apart, right? we react. Well, you didn't do this or that. You didn't follow through on that. or You said that. It's human nature to deflect. And this Samaritan woman is doing some version of this with Jesus. But what Jesus proceeds to do with this woman is to show her that all the paths that she's tried, all the identities she's trying to claim are a dead end. Certainly her life choices haven't led to fulfillment. I mean, she's isolated. She's ostracized. She's held in contempt. That didn't work. Jesus says even this religious tradition that you're trying to, to grope for some identity or association with, that misses the point too. That's not going to get you there. And so while this whole debate that is spinning is hardly worth Jesus' time, he still goes there 
to use it for a greater point. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Remarkably, Jesus says to her, you will worship. The same woman who wouldn't be allowed in the Jerusalem temple for a number of reasons will be a worshiper, he says. But he says, you know, true worship that, you, that I'm inviting you into isn't about location or setting or traditions. Jesus says, the worship I'm offering you, the living water I'm offering you is even better. I'm offering you my very spirit to lead you into worship anywhere at any time. The climax of this whole discussion is verse 26. And in verse 26, our English translations, which we are reading from this morning, kind of bury the force of this. But verse 26 in the original Greek is quite literally this. I am ego eimi who speaks to you. Or I am the one speaking to you. And now, if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, you might recall that saying I am is a loaded statement. In saying this, Jesus is equating himself with Yahweh, with God, the Lord God of Israel. The divine name of Yahweh in our Old Testament is just Hebrew for I am. From the verb to be, this is the name of God. The most holy name, and Jesus says, I am. Even this woman, even this Samaritan woman, had enough of the scriptures to know the gravity of what he is saying. Jesus is revealing something about his identity to this marginalized, broken woman. Not even righteous Nicodemus got this last Sunday. John 3. No, Jesus chooses to disclose his most profound identity to this woman that he shouldn't even be talking to. Jesus says to her, I am not only your Messiah that you long for, I am the Lord your God. In our own lives, we find sometimes that our own poor choices, our own sinful inclinations have led us to dead ends. Sometimes we even try and we reach for some virtuous or religious activity that might dig us out of that, that might make us better, that might satisfy our thirst. But what ends up happening is we just orbit the very source of living water which we need, which is Jesus himself, who sees us and knows us and still loves us. This Jesus restores us again and again and refreshes us again and again as we come to his cross in humility. Well, no doubt this 
encounter is transformational for this woman. Jesus crosses all sorts of lines to get through to her, to encounter her. Jesus offers her something way better than anything she's aware of, anything that she's tried for herself. And now this woman, seen and known and still loved, finally becomes an emissary in the mission of God. I think the force of what we see there in that verse 26, that, that highest, most powerful, most profound disclosure of who Jesus is, I think the force of that helps us understand verses 28 and 29. Because what does the woman do? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And so, if this woman has not been touched in such a profound way, why would she run back to the same people that have rejected her and held her in contempt? The very people that she's avoiding that she's trying to evade, she runs back to them to tell them, I think I found the Messiah. You have to come meet him. You have to come hear him for yourself. What's almost as crazy as Jesus, this righteous man engaging this marginalized woman in this setting, is that this same marginalized woman is able to convince her entire community to come and see this Jesus. Verse 39 through 41. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. We have here what missiologists and what leaders of the disciple-making movement across the globe would call a person of peace. This woman becomes an influencer. This woman becomes a bridge builder. Not because she's a woman of respect or honor or standing, but because she's been a woman who has been seen, known, and loved by the Messiah. And because of her testimony, this influencer draws a following of people to come see the Christ for themselves. Stories like this just make you love Jesus, don't they? Friends, this story shows us how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works as broken people find their healing. The kingdom of God works as sinners, which is you and me, get seen and known and yet still loved by God and invited into a life of true worship in spirit and truth. A worship that's available anytime, anywhere, a worship that's not restricted to location or tradition, but a worship that is animated by the very spirit of God in us and fueled by the good news of his gospel that we celebrate. I suspect many here this morning are thirsty. Many of you know where to turn. You know the source of living water that invites you again this morning to be refreshed. 
And so turn to him. Turn to Jesus. Jesus has met you before. He will meet you again. Others of you are not sure that your thirst can even be satisfied. You're not even sure that you can be seen and known and loved. If that's you this morning, don't keep turning to the things that maybe you've always tried. Money or achievements or entertainment or sex or popularity or just working harder. Don't even just turn to the religious or the virtuous things that might dig you out of the hole that you're in. Friends, we all need to come to Jesus, the source of living water. The one who promises and pours out his very spirit into our lives and the one who leads us into the very worship that he died for. This is the one who will take your mess and make you a messenger. This is the one who will take your darkness and make you a light. Let us pray. And so God, would your living water come this morning? Lord, would you refresh us? We need you. God, your living water never runs out, and so we ask again for it. Thank you, God, that you encounter us. Thank you that you come to us in our moment of need. You come to us in our brokenness and in our darkness, and you make us a light. So God, have your way in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.